Broadsheet Radio Network. Hello, my sweet little Sunny and Shares. Your friendly neighborhood Natalie here with a quick disclaimer for this week's episode. It turns out sometimes Iowa doesn't believe in the internet, or in history, or in us, or maybe it was just Cass's home internet having a particularly difficult day. In either case, we had some technical difficulties recording this episode due to egregious delays via the old Zoom machine. As such, some of Cass's audio is less than ideal, but we felt these stories were important to tell anyway and didn't want to leave this episode out of the season. So we thank you for your patience, and we love you forever, and hope you can enjoy the episode despite the kerfuffles. Hi, hello, how are you? It's an episode of Shared History. Pets deserve history, too. Oh, you know, they do. Except when you say pets history, I just think about that episode that you where you taught me about, like, a pet massacre in <laughs> World War II, was it? The, the British Pet Massacre. Yeah. World War One? No, maybe two. Yeah. They were worried that people would give their rations to their pets, so they just killed a shit ton of pets. And I really killed the mood on that one. The only animal-based history, only pet-based history that we've done have in, has, has involved massacring uh, those pets. Not animals. We've had wonderful <laughs> animal history. We had, we had the the yeah. emu war. We had the hippo bill. But when we came to pets, when we came to domestic animals, we've not been kind to them. Here's my thing. Yeah. Now. <laughs> Did I come and say, here's some awesome history I love and want to continue? No. I'm bringing awareness. I will not let this happen again. So I'm not sorry that I'm keeping the people informed. You know what? I respect that. I respect that. And in that vein, I brought a real downer uh to our first episode of <laughs> and i've been trying not to bring additional huge downers i'm trying not to give chicago a bad name of only doing murder and crime and and scandals and salaciousness that said i did almost i mean natalie that's I almost brought that's what chicago's known for it's not like you're bringing this random reputation no one's ever had of chicago before yeah it's me it's my fault and it's dick wolf's fault both of us are just, <laughs> are just letting the people know uh i did almost bring two stories from the same week as the wingfoot express disaster that are both grizzly murders slash assaults of children that was almost what i brought for you today and i thought you know Maybe, maybe we'll hold that for. Let's cool it. <laughs> Just decided I Today's wasn't. Today's not the day. I wasn't making Chicago look good, um, and I was still feeling a little guilty about the <laughs> Express disaster. So instead, let's pivot to the Chicago Renaissance. 
because I Ooh. I promise you we contributed more to history than death, crime, political mayhem, and racism. I promise you. <laughs> those those may Prove have been it. leading exports, but I promise you there's more. <laughs> um Cass, do you did you know that there was a Chicago Renaissance in the same vein as the Harlem Renaissance? I I did not. I mean, I know that there was that Chicago in what like 30s, 40s, 50s had like a huge music scene, art scene, all that stuff. But I guess I never realized it was classified as its own renaissance. Yes, that is the Black Chicago Renaissance following in the wake of the Harlem Renaissance, which is more started earlier. I think technically still would have gone through like the 40s, 50s, but like is started in the 10s and 20s. Uh, and it was born out of Bronzeville, mm -hmm. a historically black neighborhood uh, mm -hmm. in Chicago, where a lot of artists, musicians, and writers resided. One such human being I will introduce to you now, her name is Nora Holt, and she was a critical player in both the Chicago and the Harlem Renaissance, actually. And described in an, in an article in The Atlantic by Amani Perry as, quote, the most famous unknown woman of the 20th century, which makes her perfect for our podcast. I just Googled her. And first of all, there's a picture of her as when she was older and she looks adorable. And then there's a picture of her from like, I'm guessing like 20s, whatever. And she is just like blue stealing at the camera, like, Oh my God, she's wearing this mink coat. She looks fabulous. Tell me everything. I'm I obsessed. I will. I will tell you everything. As you guys know, we're doing Chicago. I'm doing Chicago history this season, but Nora wasn't born in Chicago. She was born in Kansas City, Kansas. Not even the good one. Um, she also wasn't even. <laughs> she wasn't born Nora Holt. Her name was Lena Douglas. Her father was a pastor and a presiding elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And as Nora, Nelina was, uh, as such, she was encouraged to learn piano as a young age, as a lot of children who, of pastors are. Um, <laughs> she was encouraged to be musical. And you bet your patootie that she was crushing that organ at her dad's church. But Nora's not in the church for long. Uh, it's fun to think about her story starting in the church because Nora's like... I'm guessing it does not end there. Nora is like her own Evelyn Hugo, if you're familiar with the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo. She lives her own life how she wants it. She be, she doesn't become Nora Holt for... This will... Spoilers ahead. She becomes Nora Holt when she marries her fourth husband. Uh, who was hotel owner George Holt. So that's her fourth, her fourth husband is the name that we're, I'm calling her by. Um, yes, she keeps on tickling those ivories. She studies music at Western University where she graduates as valedictorian with her degree in 1917. Um, she marries George Holt in 1916 so she was four marriages in before she like even left Kansas, basically. To be fair, 
very difficult to track the dates on Nora. How old? Not old. Her first husband was when she was 15. Um, I have a, here's, I think even if I recall correctly, Wikipedia says that she was born in 1884 or 1885. Um, in general, there's a lot of date kerfuffle. Like none of the sources that I found had a hard birth year for her. So I guess eat that asterisk now because, uh, <laughs> eat that asterisk. Eat that asterisk. <laughs> uh, because I got very confused between like four of like all of my sources while I was prepping for this one. But, she, but from what I understand, she's four marriages in before she even finishes, uh, her degree in music in 1917. To be fair, it is the early 1900s. Like I said, her first marriage was when she was 15. Um, that husband was a musician named Sky James. And then she married Philip Scroggins. Love a good name. Uh, he was a politician. <laughs> husband number three is a barber named Bruce Jones. And then we have George Holt. But it's not about them. I just say all that because she's nowhere a Holt now. And that's what I'm going to call her. Okay? Okay, but hold on. Did I miss it? Did, how did she go through these husbands? Did they die mysteriously? Was, were they divorces? Like A little column. Are you going to tell me? Column B. No, because it's not about them. Um, okay. That's right. You said that. Holt died. I know Holt died. Uh, it's not about them. She's Nora Holt now. She got her ding dang bachelor's degree and she ain't done. She goes on, she gets her master's degree. And this is when I get to claim her as a Chicago topic because she gets her master's at Chicago Musical College. And historians, believe, historians believe that she was the first African-American woman to earn a master's in music possibly the first African-American person of any gender to earn a master's in music composition in the United States. Her master's thesis was a piece for wow. called Rhapsody on Negro Themes. Her, her era is like post ragtime. There's um, a number called Negro Dance and it is some of the only like recorded proof of black women's involvement in ragtime music composition. There will be a link in the description with a video of uh, a, another black female performer playing uh, one of Nora Holt's tunes. So peep that below. But we're in Chicago now. And for, this is where dates get even like fuzzier because she keeps going. She goes on tour a lot. So it's really hard to be like, where are you? <laughs> While she's in mm -hmm. Chicago from like roughly 1917 to 1921, she works as the music critic for the Chicago Defender, which is one of, I've mentioned the Chicago Defender before, definitely brought up the Defender when we were talking about the Haymarket Affair, one of the three most influential uh, black newspapers in the country, in case you missed it. She's a classically trained composer and her experience makes her like not only a gifted reviewer, but a respected reviewer. It's not like she's not qualified for this job. She's, oh, also at this same time, if I'm, I might be a liar. Roughly the same time, probably later, if I have my timeline right, Langston Hughes is also a columnist at the Chicago Defender. So just to give us some 
give us some world of the play. She strove to strove strived strove stre stre strove. She made it her mission <laughs> to uh, review every classical con music concert during a black musician in Chicago. So she was like hitting as many show any classical music concert with a black artist in it. Her column first ran on the women's page of the paper, but uh, eventually moved to the regular news page because it was so popular. And they were like, this is just, this is music reviews. Why are we just putting this in the music, in the women's page, just because it's written by a woman. Um, she was also an advocate for musicians. She co-founded the Chicago Music Association, which later, and then also co-founded the National Association for of Negro Musicians, which I, believe came about because there were a couple of these more local like Chicago Music Association, New York Music Association, like whatever, there were a couple of them and they kind of joined mm. forces and that was the National Association of Negro Musicians, which was is still uh, one of the oldest organizations in the United States dedicated to the preservation, encouragement and advocacy of all genres of music of African-Americans. And it was supposed, the National Association of Negro Musicians was to host a convention right here in our city of Chicago. The date of that convention was supposed to be, well, it was, but it was it was July 29th to August 1st, 1919, which I mentioned that weekend would be when one of the worst race riots in United States history broke out. It's also the same week as the Wingfoot Express crash and the two grisly assaults and murders that I almost talked about tonight. Oh my god. That week? Natalie! That week! <laughs> I never want you to say that you've had a hard week. I want you to think about <laughs> two weeks in July, 1919, in July and August 1919 before you tell anyone that you've had a rough week. Okay. I'm going to start saying that to people who say they've had a rough week. I'm like, well, you weren't there July 19th, 1919 yeah. in Chicago. Did you Chicago. have a, you have a, like a race riot? Then we can talk. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that you did, Cheryl. I don't think that you did. <laughs> Fucking Cheryl. I know that I said that it wasn't about the husbands, but I said George Holt was a hotel owner. Um, I may that's that's one version of the truth. He was forty years Nora's senior. He was the treasurer of the Liberty Insurance Company and was probably an owner of a speakeasy in Chicago. Hotel owner, speakeasy, tomato tomato. When he, when he died, Nora was left with considerable wealth. Uh, it, it's actually following his death and armed with all these resources that we kind of see how unique Nora was for her time, despite already having been married a couple times. Like this is, this is now she has the resources to kind of pursue life freely. I mean, as freely as a black woman in the 1920s can. She's a music critic. She's an internationally famous performer. She's a black woman with money. She's a socialite. And she really doesn't give a toot about the rules of being a lady. I love it. 
less than a year after her husband's death, husband number four, George Holt, uh, she remarries in 1923 to Joseph Ray, the secretary to, to he was the secretary to the steel magnate Charles Schwab. So, okay. Also, holy shit, a very successful black man. Uh, it's a she's got a type. It's a lavish wedding. Um, and it doesn't exclusively get good press. There's an article that comes out about their wedding that describes her <clears throat> acquisition of wealthy men as making her, quote, more like white folks every day. Oh, end quote. Oh, shit. Because her kind of socializing and uh, ladder climbing through marriage was like, not considered something that black Americans did. It didn't, it didn't have the same social mores as black America at the time, but I just love, listen, we're well, she was good about, at it. She was good at it. We're going to, we're going to go on a little bit of a <laughs> Nora's fifth marriage tangent here because this is Nora gets a lot of press during this marriage. Um, because like I said, she doesn't give a toot about what ladies are supposed to do, and she's going to do what she wants to do. After their honeymoon, uh, Nora doesn't settle with Ray at his home in Pennsylvania. She's like, I don't want to live there. So instead, she jets off to big cities every weekend. Eventually, Ray has her followed by a private investigator. And in 1926, the Pittsburgh Courier reports that Nora was found with attorney William L. Patterson in a Harlem rooming house. Room only engaged for one night, if you know what I mean. Scandal! And oh boy, boy oh boy oh boy, is there just an insane amount of drama that follows this. Ray accuses her of bigamy. She speaks out in the press calling out other papers for like just being jerks and reporting on her personal life. Uh, she has a quote, uh, that's her quote is, I have been unjustly framed and persecuted, not because of any crime, but to appease the anger of an unscrupulous husband whose sense of decency should have restrained him from playing the game of Ray versus Ray in such an unmanly and unsportsmanlike manner. She came for him. She's like, you're going to come for me? Nah. Uh, <laughs> say not a good divorce not a healthy divorce the press has a field day with her uh-oh ray hires a, a a prominent black law firm holt hires a white law a white law firm to represent her the divorce gets like real drawn out and we don't care about him it's not about him i want to talk about what nora's up to kind of during all of this she's singing abroad in europe She's staying abroad in Europe for years. And I, I want, we talked about how she's just like blue stealing the camera, but I'm a, I'm a paint a little picture for you. She's tall. She's glamorous. She's got the mink. She's got the poils. In the midst of her <laughs> from Ray, she's blonde. Oh. <gasps> And she's known scandal. And she's known as a jazz age goddess. And she's hitting the stages in Berlin, Monte Carlo, Paris, Shanghai, Tokyo. 
a London reviewer described her voice as astonishing and said, quote, she can produce sounds not comparable to orthodox singing, ranging from the deepest low voice to a shrilling high, often unaccompanied by words. The article in the Atlantic describes her as a critical, as a critic, sure, but also as just as likely to stand on a table in a nightclub, body wrapped in satin, and sing a body blues song. She is a goddess. How did she not become like like competing? Why have I never heard of her? Oh, um, racism, but also. <laughs> well, but, oh. oh. <laughs> But That's there, right, Chicago. There's also <laughs> not a lot of her music out in the mix, and I'll I'll explain that in just a tick. I just wanna I just wanna talk about how the the fact that like the black press loved her and still at this time loves writing about her. Um she's despite the bad press she's getting because of her divorce, like she is the she's the picture of Do a, they speak favorably of her or are they just they can't knock the fact that she is incredibly talented and accomplished. And I, I know that they kind of were like, mm, you hired a white law firm and mm, this divorce is sloppy, but they're also like, yeah, but you got it. And you're kind of iconic and we're a little obsessed with you. Also, we're selling papers. <laughs> also, uh, look at you blonde. <laughs> she's the picture of she's a picture of a global like cosmopolite she's crossing all jim crow barriers with charm and elegance like doors open for her and people and like people want to see her that like would not be openly fans of a black female performer in this time but they're like yeah we make an exception for nora holt she's a jazz goddess she she's continues to perform at home and abroad throughout her life. She continues to teach. She writes about music. She even at one point hosts a radio show. And like I said, despite all her scandals, she's lauded by other free thinking black artists and voices. Like all depictions of Holt tend to be sensational because um, she's larger than life. Also, a lot of them are contradictory. Also, it's really difficult it's really difficult to keep track of her because she changed her name like a million times. We know her as Nora Holt, but that's like based on her fourth marriage. And she did take kind of, I think all of her husband's names or some permutation of them at some point. And she, and she used that. She played into and relished the confusion. She loved the opportunity to try on a new identity. It'd be like, oh, now I'm Nora Holt and Nora Holt does this i'm gonna leave nora scroggins or lena scroggins <laughs> in the past now i'm nora holt nora holt uh wears minks and sings on nightclub tables and one of but one of the so that certainly doesn't help history remember her she kind of like diluted her own brand in a way yeah but one of the main reasons she truly remains an enigma and often overlooked by history is because while she was singing abroad in Europe for like 12 years, 200 or so of her works for orchestra or chamber were stolen along with her other belongings from a storage facility in Chicago. I think it's Chicago. And she never, she never found them. 
uh, she never tries to recreate her lost work. That so pisses me off. Gone. She's like, well, they're gone. She doesn't try to recreate them. Um, only two survive. One I mentioned earlier, that's the Negro Dance or Opus 25 number one. And the other one is called The Sandman. Uh, Negro Dance, I will put a video. That's the one that I'm going to put a video in the show notes. Uh, and I like this version. Uh, in her Atlantic article, Amani Perry says that she's holding out hope that someone has Nora's music in their attic somewhere and just doesn't know. And, you know, big same. And that's Nora Holt. She lived till Natalie, maybe it's in the wall of your house. Maybe it is in the walls of my house. Anything. You got to tear down the walls again. God damn it. I just got walls. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's Nora Holt. I think we are going to have, I think we're going to have a, a huge, like Nora Holt moment where someone does just like find all of this i, I don't know so. when it's gonna be it'd be like finding the library of alexandria the whatever was saved from there yep i you know i hope so uh she lived until yeah. she was 89 so Good for you girl and i just like did she maintain her wealth i believe so Cause I hate these stories of like these phenomenal women or, or just people who like are like larger than life. And then it's like, and they died in abject poverty. <laughs> yeah. She, I mean, she, she, when she came back, she taught, she, she had that radio show. So she was still working, but I don't know. Yeah. No, I was how much, cause like husband number five. Uh, the, the secretary of the steel magnet also had money. So I don't know how much she got in that divorce or if he kind of like got some out of her mm. in that divorce. I, I, yeah, I didn't, but there's a lot she... on her marriages. And I just was like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't give a shit about these men. I want to hear about you standing at a nightclub table, wearing a mink and satin and singing a body blues song. Also just, I didn't want to bring you more murder, and I know you love music history, so I brought you some music. I love it. And then as soon as you were like, oh, dancing and singing a body blues song, I was like, that's my dream. Yep. <laughs> what I'm getting from the story you just told me is that you are interested in enigmatic, powerful women in history who are associated with the arts. Is that right? I was never on Tinder, but it feels like you read my Tinder bio. <laughs> well, get ready to swipe right, because I got a treat for you. This is so perfect that we have these topics together. I'm going to tell you about Carmen Amaya. Have you ever heard of Carmen Amaya? No. Carmen Amaya is a flamenco phenom okay. like changed the game she is flamenco dancing so he, she's who you think of when then you... now and always okay because i have a there's an image of a woman in my head yeah not even like a dancer and that's i'm just yeah. decide i'm gonna look her up but i'm deciding that that's carmen 
like in the world of flamenco like people who know flamenco like carmen amaya is king and queen she is all things carmen was born on november 2nd in either 1913 or 1915 her birth year is like up for listen they just didn't keep track of records well oh 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 they did but do you want to know what happened oh there was a church fire and her baptismal records fucking burnt because of course there was a fucking church fire guys this is why our her old old library of alexandria the worst invention uh or discovery perhaps in all time may have been fire it created oh i thought you were saying libraries (laughs) yeah i want to be on the record as saying the worst creation of (laughs) of all time was libraries these libraries would not be burning down if you didn't fucking build them y'all that's the problem (laughs) the problem is the library (laughs) so her birth year is like very meh iffy when so like again every subsequent thing following is very like blurry as far as timeline so i'm gonna give you kind of the basic timeline of things but like it every article was like things jumped around differently or ordered slightly differently so basically i'm gonna tell you about this badass chick and don't worry about the specifics right of like when was in where doesn't matter yeah so she was born in somorostro a shanty town that existed in barcelona by the seaside sorry barcelona i was going to thank you for not doing (laughs) and then which is exactly why i had to do it (laughs) makes sense so carmen was of spanish romani descent uh the romani people oftentimes are are most known for what we call gypsies right Mm. um and that becomes very kind of important in her identity later on or actually throughout her entire dancing career she grew up very poor by the seaside again in like a shanty there's this almost mythology that was created around her birth and like her young adolescent life so here's a quote from carmen i was born by the sea it's carmen amaya Iamaya. i am amaya twice over as both my father and my mother were called amaya all the amayas in the world are my cousins and it is said that the night of her birth there was a raging storm at sea and the waves crashed against the doors of the shack she called home uh, the sea taught me to dance, she said on more than one. So very like poetic, artistic, and storm is like perfectly encapsulates her dancing style and what she brought to flamenco. So she's what they called a Baileoras, which is a female flamenco dancer. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that there were gender terms for male or female flamenco dancers. Yeah. The more you know. I didn't either. The more you know. Ta-ding! Um, Her father was 
uh, Spanish Romani as well. He was a poor guitar player. He would play in cafes and nightclubs. Um, but she would just dance in all these nightclubs starting at six and was just enthralling people. She was amazing. There was something that said that he didn't enroll her in a dance academy because he wanted her to retain her, quote, pure and instinctive dance style. But they also just went on and on about how they had, like, no money. So I don't know if that's, again, back to the mythology of, like, we we tried to tame her and we couldn't, you know? Yeah. Um, because it just doesn't seem likely to me that they would have been able to afford a dance academy. In 1929, when she was either 14 or 16, she performed in the International Exposition in Barcelona. So another World Expo, which the posters for are awesome. It's like that old Art Deco style. Oh. Um, and this is when she kind of, people started taking notice of her in on kind of a bigger and international level all of these journalists were writing about her again everyone was coming from the world to barcelona right now to come to this exposition um sebastia gosh who wrote for mirador weekly said quote picture a 14 year old gypsy girl sitting on the chair on the tableau which is a flamenco stage Carmen Sita, impassive, haughty, and noble, and then comes the jump, the gypsy dances, indescribable, soul, pure soul. So they they really sensationalized it, and again, they really played into this, like, you know, stereotypical, like, wild gypsy kind of showmanship mm-hmm. thing, which she was, like, sh- sh- her dancing was wild. It was unencumbered it was the so if whoever if you don't know what flamenco dancing is it's kind of like spanish tap dance almost um it's it's all about footwork and instead of like how tapping is kind of tap dancing is very kind of light Mm -hmm. it's it's a lot of like stomping but think of the intricacies of like how many taps per minute you're getting with tap dancing now add like force to that yeah um there there is a tradition in flamenco of kind of gendered dancing again so a lot of the very complex intricate difficult dance moves were or footwork were reserved for men like they did the fancy footwork and a lot of female flamenco players or dancers they're more focused on their arms and like twisting so like full body movement and they would obviously do a lot of footwork but it was almost like you're a girl you don't do the men's footwork it's too hard for you it's not feminine don't touch it it's like there are there are moves that figure skaters don't do and they're are mm-hmm. well and it's like with ballet like men don't traditionally dance on point yeah so and and that's i mean and that's fine i'm not saying that they're like we're sexist because we won't whatever it's just the style of the dance so carmen 
picture this like wild gypsy hair flowing around. She would wear um, like men's flamenco outfits. So these very tight jackets, these high waisted pants, um, a very masculine look. And yet she'd let her hair like swirl all over the place. And she would be doing all of these male flamenco steps, which again, extremely intricate, very difficult, full force stomping while you're doing this. Um, we'll post videos of her as well. Uh, and it kind of took the world by storm. It changed flamenco dancing and it made her flamenco. Like when you, if you are a fan of flamenco, if you know anything about it, like Carmen Amaya is the be all and all changed the game, made it what it is. She's the goat. She's the goat. Just like a a force of nature. Kind of like a storm at sea. Like a storm. <laughs> a tempestuous dancer. So this is where like I so 1929, she was like 15 or 16 and she did the World Expo Barcelona. And then this is where the dates international debut. And all these journalists started writing about her. Everyone wanted her to perform on their stage. So it, it said in 1935 that she made her debut at the Coliseum Theater in Madrid. And then later she played the Palace Theater in Paris. I don't know that that's the exact date that she started touring internationally. Because again, the World Exposition was in 1929. Basically after that, she started, after 1929, she started touring around Europe. She's going to all of these like huge venues, amazing like like dance royalty. Like if you are anyone, you've performed at these theaters. She's going all around and she's performing at all of these theaters. In 1936, civil war broke out in Spain and she had to flee. Uh, her and her family went to Portugal and then they took a two week voyage to Argentina and it's on boat so um naturally uh it was awful she said the journey was a nightmare that she would never forget where the worst way to travel might be the worst way to travel <laughs> yes so they fled they went to argentina and she toured and performed all over south america a sensation like everyone was obsessed with her They're like who is this woman and then after her tour and south same thing like she performed at the white house and i can't remember which president it was for, but she performed for like one of the presidents. Um, people were just enamored with her. Yes. Uh, so here, oh yes, here's a, a quote from an article. The rest is history or rather legend. She took Buenos Aires by storm and went on to conquer Latin America and the United States, culminating in a front cover on Life magazine and a private performance for President Roosevelt in the White House. Life magazine was like fucking huge. Yeah. It was like Rolling Stone, but even back when Rolling Stone was big, because now one cares about magazines. Um, so the fact that this flamenco dancer from Spain is now on the cover of Life, performing for the president, like, I just, I can't, like, convey how big of a deal that yeah. was. And then in 1947, she returned to Spain. So wh why, why is she such a big deal? Why is she important? Again, her hard masculine style of dance was often 
copied, you know, like she made it kind of possible for more women to do that. Also her style of dancing, even when she's doing these, these male steps, men were trying to do what she was doing. So it wasn't just like, oh yay, women can do this stuff. No, it's men being like, I want to dance like her. Also, I'm pretty sure women and men have different flamenco shoes, just like for tap, like there's women's tap shoes and men's shoes, which stage tap shoes, women usually have a little bit of a heel. Flamenco dances, I think she was using women's shoes while doing male dances, which throw a heel onto anything, it's going to make it harder. <laughs> uh, so while she was often copied, she was, many believe she was inimitable, and to this day there's never been a dancer to match her ferocious style of dance. Her fast rattling footwork became her trait, and it is said that on several occasions she actually put her foot through the stage while performing. She will be remembered as a dancer who wore the traje corto, a tight-fitting suit, which normally had only been worn by men. Her style of dance was far from feminine. She made, she created did her own like deeply personal style of flamenco dance um it was something that it wasn't like a new form of dance it was just that's carmen amaya dance like think of your favorite athlete performer whatever like only they could do that did did adele invent singing no can anyone do what adele can do no right like you like it's just it's adele's thing she just made this her own and she made everyone like just look at her like they you just can't stop watching her when she started performing she was criticized for uh kind of her non-conformist style but alongside of that everyone was like praising her as well so there's always critique with doing something kind of different or out of the norm so there was some criticism from her, but for the most part, it was like, wow, look at this chick. It, yeah, her. it says her manly image and legs of steel became her trademark. Yes. Um, yes, she was accused of defeminizing the female flamenco dance, but she also evolved throughout her career. Um, so towards the end of her career, she dropped a lot of that masculine image and she concentrated more on feminine style as well. Um, every artist gets to evolve and should evolve. And I think her style of dancing was never a critique of feminine flamenco dancing. I don't think it was ever supposed to be a challenge of like, you won't let me do this. I'm, I'm going to break the mold. I think that's just how she danced. That's how she preferred to dance. And then, of course, you know, she was discovered at the Barcelona Exposition, so... Once you're noticed for doing this one thing, you keep doing it, right? So she she very much honored feminine flamenco dancing as well. It's also one of those things where it's like it can't like just because her she was doing moves that traditionally were like reserved for men doesn't mean that she was like spitting on feminine flamenco dancing. Like it's that thing where it's like, must we Yeah and, and that we are that we are attacking someone? Can't we just be like, yeah, kind of bullshit that like, we're not allowed to do that. And I like doing that. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. And it was, it was a total nonconformist take. And yes, usually when, usually when someone, um, kind of throws off the rules and it's like, fuck the rules, I'm going to do it my way. It's seen as a challenge or like, 
I don't like the way it's done and I'm going to change it. I don't think there was this confrontation from her. I don't think it was, fuck this. I want to be at, in the sit at the boys' table. I don't think it was, yeah. And I think to start a debate, you know? Um, so I like that she went back to more feminine fl flamenco dancing towards the end of her career. Also, you can't fucking sustain that forever. She put a hole through a stage. Like, honestly, she was probably just tired. And she's like, all right, guys, I'm going to do arms now. My feet are Cass, have you put a hole through a stage? I feel like... I feel like it'd be on brand for you to have put a hole through a stage. I may have. No, no. I've definitely fallen off, fallen on. I think I've put a hole in a wall, but not a floor. Oh, okay. I'm shocked. Stages have put holes in me. This is true. <laughs> but. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. So here's a great quote. Uh, Carmen Amaya danced with the flowing ease of a serpent, twisting and arching her body as she turned with such speed and perfection, driven by what appeared to be an almost animal instinct. Uh, and quote, she was treated like a gypsy queen. This idea of this mythologizing of her began from when she was very young and perpetuated by her itself. Uh, gypsy is often seen as a derogatory comment, um, derogatory descriptor, but she very much owned this and it was what was so alluring about her. It was her wildness, her um, exoticism. I mean, she's yeah. she's Spanish and she's in Spain and yet she was perceived as exotic. Yeah. And she used her otherness to catapult her career and to hone in on that and not shy away from it. Watching some of her dancing is just, it's phenomenal. And then she died in 1963. She was either 48 or 50, uh, really young when she died. She had uh, a kidney disease, I believe. Yeah, she had kidney disease. Um, she was awarded the Medal of Merit of Tourism, the Lasso of the Lady Ooh. of the Order of Isabel la Católica. Sounds like, like shit. Yeah. Three years after her death, she was honored by a monument placed in the amusement park of Mont week Buenos Aires has a street named after her in Madrid the Tablao Los Califas um she was honored by a tribute performance um she was mourned when she when she died it was a great loss for for flamenco um and for Spain um they really honored her as as a, a he and she was fucking badass I am obsessed. I love that yeah. we brought song and dance to this episode. Both. I know. She was in a few movies. Oh. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was like an Elvis thing where it's like, oh, look at this heartthrob performer. Let's throw him in a movie. Um, Or if it was, I don't know that it was necessarily like she's turned into an actress, but yeah. Oh, she she was photographed with Elizabeth II. 
the newspaper photograph titled Two Queens Face to Face. <gasps> like, she was, like, huge internationally. Just international sensations left and right. Yep. I love whenever we... We love to see it. I love when we don't... Co- like Because we don't... Listeners, we don't coordinate what we're doing. <laughs> Sometimes... We, we used lo- to. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we theme... But we did not theme. Mm-mm. The most we themed was that I uh, I asked Cass for a vibe check. And she said, I don't know, not a downer. And I went, <laughs> I, go, I go back to the drawing board. <laughs> Maybe this isn't the time to talk about the ch- children dying. <laughs> I think I did say, if you do have a downer, you can bring it. Because Carmen's going to just, Carmen's going to save us all. Yeah, but I'm glad that we had we get to have two women just at the top of their fucking fields, not taking shit from anyone and just doing their thing and, and being unapologetically amazing at it. And like like again, didn't die in abject poverty or, you know, you know, yes, nameless, you know, like they they had these amazing careers, sustained them and like lived yeah, well their whole lives and in both start to finish cases, in both cases are like women who are seen as having broken barriers or tradition in their fields or just in life and not because i'm gonna just i'm gonna bring it back again like why why when so often when we're talking about a uh, like a woman breaking with tradition or breaking barriers, it's always at the expense of like her own gender. Like it's always spun in a way of like that, that it's punching down at yeah. women and it's, they're not. I must kill any sort of femininity in me or. Yeah. There's not, there doesn't have to be causation there. It's just like, we're doing the thing. Let us do the thing. Just cause we succeed at doing a thing differently doesn't make i don't know it it drives me insane so two women who are credited for like breaking barriers you know it doesn't drive me insane these two women they don't i mean they do because like they're both just like so spicy cass who would you who i almost want to like swapsies if they were to make i'm gonna make you do mine if they were to make a biopic on nora holt who do you want to play nora holt Okay. Uh, in a movie, let's see. I like. I kind of want to say Yara Shahidi. Like, I I don't think that is the right casting, but I think Yara Shahidi reminds me of Nora Holt. She's just this like boss ass bitch doing the damn thing she started like producing directing making her own production company like getting her bachelor's degree from harvard like all of this stuff just like well i wanted to do it so i'm gonna do it yeah i can be a boss bitch and crushing the game but i don't know that that's the right actress choice I, I have a similar sort of... Like, I'm going to stick with it because I love Yara Shahidi. I mean, what's not to love? I I would say looks-wise, uh, a young Gloria Estefan for, uh, for Carmen. 
Carmen Amaya and a young Gloria Stefan. There's mm-hmm. there's some overlap there. But um, my initial instinct was Ana de Armas, who is Cuban Spanish. Actually, so is Gloria Stefan, I think. But I just, I, I could also- Oh, I could it. see that. Oh, I could see that. I like, and again, she's she's Mexican, not Spanish, but like, I just think of like Salma Hayek and the beginning of her career. Mm-hmm. Like, granted, a lot of this was, you know, playing on the exoticism trope and like the sex pot thing. But a lot of her early career, she was just, she just played this like free, wild, like the hair. Uh, sure. Seeing her in in Frida when she would dress as the man and she would dance with a woman, like that's not flamenco dancing, but like she just has like the energy that I imagine. Or and I think she's too old, but Zoe Saldana, mm-hmm. and she's Afro Latina. She's not Spanish, but um, I mean, I she has a dancing background. Doing, uh, doing Nora, I could see Zoe doing Nora. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Listeners, as always, let us know. Let us know who you're casting. I think there's I think there's so many options for this. It's going to be hard. Yeah. Until next time, go and check out our social medias. We'll have a lot of good stuff in there at shared pod on Instagram and sometimes Twitter and at shared history pod on Mastodon. We love you. Please leave us a rating and review. I hope you we hope you enjoyed these these badass bitches and until next time share you later Broadsheet Radio Network